Hello and welcome to The History of Now, a podcast run from the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked-down living room just north of the River Cam. My name is Chris Clark, and this is the eighth of a series of podcast conversations around issues related to the current COVID-19 crisis. My conversation partner today is Sarah Pearsall, and we'll be talking about women and epidemic disease in early America. Sarah teaches early American history here at Cambridge. She's the author of Atlantic Families, Lives and Letters in the Later 18th Century, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2008, and more recently, Polygamy, an Early American History, which came out with Yale University in 2019. Sarah, in, in recent weeks, it seems, um, the gendered character of um, the pandemic experience has once again become a, a salient issue. We've been reading about the rise in cases of domestic violence among uh, households where, uh, which are observing lockdown. Uh, we've been hearing about the particular exposure of women as uh, nurses and workers in other functions for the NHS to, to disease, to contagious disease. And we've been hearing a lot about the pressures on single mothers, but also on mothers who do more than their uh, fair share of childcare within relationships, having to homeschool and in many cases balance homeschooling of their children and, and general childcare with work from home. Uh, it's clear that our experience of this epidemic is gendered. In what ways do you think was the encounter with contagious and epidemic disease gendered in the very different world of early America. Women suffered epidemic disease. Did they do so in a way that was specific to them? Uh, yes, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk about the issues that I think are the historical ones raised by this epidemic um, and the many epidemics that blighted life in early America. Um, and I think there is a gendered component in some, some of the similar ways to those you've outlined for the contemporary moment in terms of women's caretaking responsibilities and their particular experience of disease. Um, some of these are biological, how it affects women who are pregnant, how it affects children, and some of them are social and cultural in terms of the labor that's expected of women and that they end up doing in these particularly difficult moments. And can you take us into um, any, any episodes or moments which you think exemplify that nexus? Yes, um, there's, I, I think one that brings it home is, um, involves a midwife named Martha Ballard who worked in Maine in the late 18th century. Her life is beautifully detailed by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. She was ministering in a scarlet fever epidemic in Hallowell, Maine in August of 1787. She was the town midwife, but she also did a lot of nursing work, taking care of sick children and sick adults throughout the town. The, Virus that causes scarlet fever is the streptococcus, which causes strep throat and other as rashes and other problems, as well as childbed fever. So it's something that women and children experienced in particular. As she was moving from one house to another, 
She came across one house in which a little boy died. And although she is usually quite taciturn and reserved in her emotional tenor, she said in her diary afterwards, poor mother, how distressing her case near the hour of labor and three children more very sick. Mm. Ulrich suggests that Ballard is unusually emotional seeing this pregnant mother who's just lost her child and has three sick children because she remembered her own situation during a diphtheria epidemic 20 years earlier in 1769. Yeah. In that period, Ballard herself had been heavily pregnant, taking care of her six children. And within a week, three of those children, three girls, aged eight, four, and two, all died of diphtheria as she was close to giving birth herself. This, I think, really brings home how women are both sufferers in particular ways and also caretakers. Mm. And those roles are often intertwined. And, and this, this diary of Ballard, which, as you say, has been very tellingly um, opened up by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, um, it, it's, it's an unusual source, but Ballard is not, uh, Ballard's role as a midwife is not in itself unusual. I mean, there were many, many women working in this role. Indeed. What's unusual about Ballard is that she kept such a good diary about it. Mm. But there are many, many caretaking women in early America. Actually, I have a PhD student, Meg Roberts, who's working on this very topic during the American Revolution. Women did so much care work, disproportionate amounts of care work for diseased and disabled people. And most of that work has been under sourced has been overlooked because too frequently they were too busy caring for people to actually record anything about that care work. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, and, and I, I recall, I think it was Peter Baldwin in one of these podcast conversations commenting on the, the very different levels of attention that different forms of epidemic disease have received. And he made the point, I think it was him, that scarlet fever is receives rather um, rather negligent achievement uh, 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 um, treatment from the sort of from experts on epidemiology and also from public health authorities because it's endemic because it's a mm -hmm. something which is always present. It's not something which has the shock value of of a, a sudden outbreak of plague or, for that matter, of COVID nineteen. That's right. Partly because because that streptococcus virus can take these very mild forms of things like strep throat or a kind of inflammation, but it can also become deadly scarlet fever or what 18th century people called canker rash um, that could be devastating and particularly devastating for women who were giving birth and who had recently given birth. Um, and they were particularly hard hit by that, but it's true because of its kind of endemic nature um, scarlet fever, though it was a very dangerous disease, as we can see from this moment, um, it, it doesn't have quite the same drama, maybe, of some of the others. Mm, that's very interesting. I mean, of course, but as you say, it's, in, it's overlaid or inflected with another uh, process, the process of giving birth, which is itself a moment of, um, of vulnerability from a health standpoint. 
Indeed it is. Um, And women can be particularly vulnerable at the moment, at times of pregnancy and birth and shortly thereafter. Um, And this obviously has a particular kind of effect. Um, But there are other resonances of women's work and epidemic experience that also matter. Um, And we might think a little bit about the gender division of labor among, for example, Anishinaabe and other Algonquian people um, in the area around the St. Lawrence River on the border between what is, you know, in sort of Canada um, and northern parts of the United States today. in part, looking at this area, um, as I did in my book on polygamy, is helpful to understand something about um, women's experience of population loss at this difficult period. So what period are we talking about precisely here? So I'm thinking really about the 1630s. And in what way did, what, what kind of epidemic are we talking about? So there are a series of epidemics. Let me give you a little bit of background about the people I'm talking about. Mm. The area around the St. Lawrence River is a rich land, but of course it's cold for much of the year. And it requires a lot of advanced planning to ensure that people have enough to eat over those long winters. There is a pretty... um, strict division of gendered labor among native people in this area in this period. Men hunt and they fish, but women do just about everything else towards food provision, including Mm. planting and harvesting crops. As one early Jesuit missionary summarized, the women know what they are to do and the men also, and one never meddles with the work of the other. Mm. This work And this life is somewhat unsettled by the arrival of the French. They arrive uh, first as explorers in the 16th century and then as settlers in the early 17th. And as their numbers grew, so did native exposure to various European diseases. People who did this basic work of making food available, of harvesting, of planting, of processing and collecting and making sure that things were preserved over those tough long winters were women. And they died in epidemics disproportionately, um, epidemics especially of influenza and smallpox, which are particularly devastating to pregnant women and women who've recently given birth. Mm. And of course, the deaths of those women and children are emotionally wrenching to their communities, but they're also socially and demographically and economically devastating. Because if epidemics flourished at harvest time in the summer and early autumn, as they often did, women were diverted from the usual task of harvesting and processing that food. So at the moment when those things happened, women are taking care of sick children, of sick families, of themselves. They're not doing that work of food provision. It means that the, there's a potential for people to go hungry that following winter. 
and to be further vulnerable to diseases. And partly we can see this happening. Um, so in five years, there are four major epidemics in one area. In 1634, there was measles. In 1636, influenza. We don't know what 1637 brought, but it was a fatal series. And 1639 unleashed the worst disease of all, smallpox. Mm. Things so, were, yes. So, so this is about the bundling of different diseases in kind of epi epidemic packages and sequences. It, yes, and it's partly exacerbated by the situation in which people find themselves and the timing of these diseases in terms of food processing and provision. And partly what's important is that we know that Indians themselves recognized and they recognized the differential mortality rates between themselves and the French. The French had been exposed to these diseases previously. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean to say some individuals might not die of smallpox, for example, but on the whole, French settlers had contracted measles as children, had a milder form, and were now immune. Natives were not. And one Indian, in fact, came to ask the French in this period why they were still living when, as he put it, his people were becoming visibly depopulated. That's interesting because, I mean, you know, we think of epidemic disease as being about the kind of um, trajectory of pathogens through large populations of mutually interchangeable human atoms. But actually what you're talking about here is the combination of disease with other forms of vulnerability. I mean, these people have already been presumably been pushed back by the French or um, have their means of uh, securing their futures been diminished at the time when, um, when they're also struck by these pathogens. That's right. Um, and part of what's been a very significant move in thinking about early American history and the effect of epidemics and European diseases on Native Americans is for people to understand that it's not merely a kind of what used to be called virgin soil epidemics, that is, Europeans unknowingly brought these diseases which are unleashed on native communities who lack immunity and it kills them in large numbers. Of course, that did happen, but it has to be understood within a, a broader context of vulnerable communities made more vulnerable by colonialism, war, violence, and in some cases, refugee migration. So that those moments of things like the 1630s, we can see it doesn't happen immediately on the French arriving that everyone becomes ill. It happens gradually over time and it has to do with these broader kind of contexts around vulnerability, hunger, and devastation that's already been brought in other ways. And, and did the French register what's happening among the Native American people? They do register what's happening. I mean, partly they record many cases of funerals. They record many discussions about ministering to dying people. Mm. They also record things um, like they say in the Jesuit relations, 
Those poor people, meaning the natives, do not know to what cause to attribute the mortality among them. It's obvious mm -hmm. to people at the time that it is differentially devastating to native communities. Yes. Well, we've been we've been thinking about women as sufferers mm. from diseases, uh, obviously alongside men and children, as you've made clear. But um, but sufferers in ways that are specific to them. But women also carry carry, and you've also touched on this, um, various gendered, you know, custodial burdens, the care for children in particular, and even in in situations of really gross social disruption. Um, the care for children who may not even be their own children. Um, so in that, in that, in those situations, they may take over custodial responsibilities uh, for the community, not just for their own kind of clan connections. In what ways does does epidemic disease exacerbate those burdens? Um, it certainly exacerbates those. And among the kinds of uh, grim stories that the Jesuits record about these vulnerable communities, about these hard hit, depopulated. Um, peoples, they record things like the story of an Anishinaabe woman whose name they don't give. Um, she had lost her husband and her own children to an epidemic, probably one of these epidemics in the earlier period that I was mentioning. Hmm. She ends up basically adopting what they call five little children that she had saved in the public calamity. She's likely already to have been a caretaker or nurse to these children in some way. She ends up taking full care of them. But this is in one of these difficult moments of food uh, deprivation. And although she's working and farming an area, hunger is plaguing her household. And one day a French missionary comes to find her quite despondent and in tears, as he records. And she tells him, I have for a long time been accustomed to pass whole days without eating, working in my field and taking nothing. But I cannot hear these children cry with hunger without being touched. Mm. This, said she, is the cause of my tears. She is able successfully to appeal to the French for assistance as she waits for the harvest of her own small farm. But partly we see both her suffering and her caretaking work at play. Yeah, a sort of double vulnerability. Um, and what, uh, hang on, I just sort of lost the thread there for a moment. I've got to, I'm, I, I'm going to, have to make a cut here, um, Graham. This is... right. I could, I could tell another uh, story of a, a more well-known person. Yeah. Um, I, whose mother I, I... also had that sort of double. Yeah. Um, okay. Good. Good. Uh, do that. Now, what was the time? What was the time and setting of that story you just told about the Abishinabe woman? So that's in the mid 17th century. Okay, right. So I'll start by saying, and this this um, episode comes from the mid 17th century, like the one that you, you we, we were talking about before, and in in, um, in um, where is it? No, where was it? The one that was the 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 yeah, the in the Saint Lawrence River. No, on the, along the Saint Lawrence River up near Canada, exactly. Okay, good. So, and then you can say yes, and there are other examples. Should we do that? Sure. Good. Okay. 
And, and this episode, uh, Sarah, comes from the mid 17th century, uh, like those, the, the case you mentioned, or the case of those women you mentioned um, along the St. Lawrence River. That's correct. Um, and that is a particular uh, difficult moment and period for natives in that area. But there are many other examples um, throughout early American history of women both suffering from epidemic disease and also serving as caretakers. And we can see this in the story of um, actually the mother of someone who became president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, mm. who became president in the uh, early 19th century. Both Andrew and his brother Robert, when they were teenagers, were um, taken captive of the British during the American Revolutionary War in 1781. And while they were held in a POW camp, they both contracted smallpox. Elizabeth, their mother, managed to negotiate for their freedom. And she then had to carry both of her six sons across back home many many miles um, they had one horse so robert who was the sicker sat on the horse that was led by elizabeth as andrew who was also suffering smallpox walked beside her and in the pouring rain they made it home when they got home robert died andrew survived his mother went to care for sick relatives and then she herself became ill and died. Extraordinary. <laughs> These are extraordinary stories, I must say. Um, you know, what about, these are, we've, we've been talking about white settler Americans and we've been talking about Native Americans. What about African Americans? Africans are being, already being brought to America in industrial quantities in the 18th and early 19th centuries. How does their story uh, connect with the story of epidemic disease on that continent? Um, well, it, it connects in, in many ways. And of course, the story for enslaved Africans is a dismal one. Um, I could say some particular things about smallpox. I'd like to come back to that shortly. But for the moment, let me just say that although Europeans often and Americans often justified the enslavement of Africans on the basis of their alleged superior immunity. And it is true that obviously there were diseases like malaria in Africa that had been experienced by African populations. Nevertheless, this is used as a reason to justify enslavement. And of course, the effects of epidemic disease on people taken in slavery in ships across the Atlantic is phenomenally high and terrible. And those diseases continue to plague them throughout the places they are in North America, particularly in the Caribbean. There's particularly good work by people like Vincent Brown, Sasha Turner, and others on the effects of these diseases um, in, uh, among Caribbean enslaved populations. Um, there are issues around reproduction um, so that mothers, again, suffer a range of diseases which also diminish fertility. 
And this is partly why Caribbean masters fight so hard to continue the international slave trade, because the Caribbean slave population cannot, on the whole, reproduce itself. This is a major issue, and it continues, that fertility issue continues to drive the international slave trade on the British and American side until the early 19th century. That's very interesting. We've been thinking about different groups of humans, so um, Native Americans, Native American women, um, settler women, and, um, and, and African Americans. Do you think it is possible to, can one tell a sort of unitary story of epidemic disease, or is there a different narrative to be constructed for the different diseases? How specific is the history of particular epidemic pathogens? Well, obviously there are some very particular aspects to certain kinds of disease. Um, among the most problematic are smallpox and yellow fever. Those are diseases that have a particular kind of take up and a particularly dramatic and really horrible kind of um, ending for the people who die of them. What, what happens when you have yellow fever? Um, well, you, um, you have obviously a high fever and notably you often begin coughing blood and ultimately a, a marker of yellow fever is coughing up what basically looks like coffee grind grounds, oh, um, a kind of black vile like substance that is a notable um, marker of yellow fever. That doesn't sound good. No. And, um, and, and smallpox? What smallpox. I mean, we're, all, we're all familiar with, we're familiar with those, the, 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 the pustules or the boils that leave dimples on the skin of, of individuals who've recovered. What, what happens with smallpox? Well, smallpox causes those um, pox, which can cover the entire body, and they can also cover internal organs. And in the very worst forms of smallpox, essentially, the multiple pox merge into one enormous pox, which basically um, causes complete distress in internal organs and is the most kind of horrible choking death for the sufferers who have it. So these are very these are these are diseases with very different sort of symptomatic profiles. Um, and, so that's true. Um, but there are also, of course, some similarities. Um, uh, obviously, as I've noted, communities made vulnerable by slavery and enslavement, by violence and war, by colonialism and dispossession are on the sort of vulnerable front lines for all kinds of diseases. Mm. And women in particular, again, have issues around pregnancy and childbirth, and they also have, in general, the greater care responsibilities. That includes enslaved women who take care of their white masters, their own families, and the families of their masters. In many cases, they are on the front lines of contagious disease epidemics as caretakers. And how do, if we think now about America in the late 18th and early 19th century, so the revolution is now in the past, but the Civil War hasn't yet happened, 
um, pre-bellum, ante-bellum America, um, does this society try to meet the threat of contagious disease with any uh, of the institutions we're familiar with, with quarantines and um, lockdowns and isolation? Well, actually, they had been doing that since the 17th century. Um, and if I could focus a little bit on smallpox, mm. um, because there is a wonderful book by Elizabeth Fenn called Pox Americana, um, which details an extraordinary pandemic of smallpox in just the same years as the American Revolution, mm. um, from 1775 to 1782. There are about 25,000 continental uh, American army soldiers who die in the revolution. There are about 130,000 people who die in the smallpox pandemic of those same years. It kills vastly more people than the American Revolutionary War. Isn't that extraordinary? And yes. It reminds me of the of the Spanish influenza, which killed more people than the First World War, but it's it doesn't register in our historical memory in anything like the same way. Exactly. Um, partly because people didn't always put together, and it's Fenn's brilliance um, that she did, that there is a, a range of moments it, from Canada to the Hudson's Bay Company to Mexico City to California to Montana, what is now Montana and California, these, as well as Boston and Philadelphia, that smallpox is raging in all of them over those years. And it's an extraordinary story, um, partly because sometimes we don't even have records of smallpox. So in some um, of the sort of Mexican communities where it hit, all that Fenn could do was find the burial registers that the Catholic Church kept. And what you can find in those burial registers for those years is extraordinary. So in some parishes, for example, the average number of burials per month was five people. Mm. At, at its height, it was 13. Suddenly, in 1780, 81, it's 130 people in one yeah. month. The next month, it's 300 people. And that's across parish after parish after parish, this incredible surge in death. Why, why do you think that is? That whereas the revolution, you know, it, it continues unabated to sort of engage our interest and, and even our passion, that that we have so little imaginative energy left over for these extraordinary struggles with epidemic disease. Um, I think, I mean, it's a good question. Um, it's a difficult one. In some sense, they're so ubiquitous, I think, that, I mean, at least for early American history, that um, they don't always register with the drama that wars do. And could it um, also be that, that we're sort of addicted to, do you think it's because we're addicted to human agency? We need, uh, we need this to be, we need our history to be about the kind of clash of human interest with human interest. Uh, or at least of human structures with human structures, we find it very difficult to integrate into that kind of uh, agency-driven narrative, the sort of agentless assault of a pathogen, on a, on a, which may not even be alive in the case of a virus, uh, on a human population. I mean, I think that's true. On the other hand, it does 
I mean, there are many ways in which human agency is very important. Um, and I mean, you asked earlier about quarantining, for example. Um, this is something that people try to do. And in fact, George Washington tries to do all kinds of things to prevent smallpox um, reaching his soldiers during the war, um, not always with success. And I think there is a way in which there are many aspects of human agency, even if, of course, there is another agency involved that is harder for historians to sort of pin down. But I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. It's fascinating. It's really very interesting because, I mean, uh, we've touched on this in a couple of the earlier conversations, a, a comment that Amitav Ghosh made in his book, The Great Derangement, about how difficult it is to integrate uh, natural calamities, including uh, diseases and epidemics, but also tsunamis and uh, tornadoes and floods and so on, into the kinds of narratives that historians and, and, mod and modern novelists and so on are familiar with, mm -hmm. you know, which are, which are causal narratives uh, where the causation extends from the beginning of the narrative through to the end in a sort of chain of interlocking, interconnected moments. And, um, and, and epidemics disrupt that. Um, they create a different kind of time. You know, they disrupt the, the normal flow of what we would think of, I suppose, as, as his, the, the sort of self-telling story of history happening in the present. And um, it suddenly comes to a halt. They're, they're a kind of moment of hiatus. And so, you, I, I mean, listening to what you said about George Washington, there's also um, the case in, in um, the 1830 revolutions in, in Western Europe, starting in Paris and fanning out across Europe, of the cholera epidemic, which happened at the same time. And for example, prevented, made it impossible for the Russians to intervene um, in support of the King of Holland uh, against the revolution unfolding in the southern provinces in what became the independent kingdom of Belgium. So there again, you have the inter intersection between the history of a pathogen and the history of you know, European politics. But the cholera dimension of that story is, is mostly extremely marginal, although it was actually a very lethal epidemic. Mm. Yes, I mean, it is extraordinary. And partly, um, I mean, there's an issue about the diseases themselves. There's an issue about what the effects of the diseases are that certainly haven't gotten as much attention as they should have. Um, and of course, now we're more interested in questions about quarantine, about inoculation and vaccination other things that also concern people in the 18th century, for example, but that we don't always see um, as much coverage of. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely, I mean, you, by putting the politics back into the history of the encounter with epidemics, you, one can of course integrate it into, into something that looks like a familiar historical narrative. But at the same time, I suppose what you've been saying suggests that we also need to be a bit more sensitive to the to the place of the non-human in um, in in our stories about you know human experience of the past. Um, Sarah, the world of early America that you're um, expert in is in many ways uh, one very remote from our own. It's very very different in all kinds of obvious ways. Does thinking about these episodes you've been talking about does that trigger reflections in your mind on our contemporary predicament as we face uh, COVID nineteen? It does. Um, I mean, partly for me, obviously, it's interesting to think about the role of women. Some of these same issues about suffering and about caretaking, of course, we still see. 
Um, and there are many different ways that I think we might think about this. I mean, many people, it was in fact on one of your earlier podcasts, talk about how Isaac Newton, you know, when he had to leave Cambridge to because of plague in the 1660s, developed theories of gravity. But, you know, Newton didn't have children at home to take <laughs> care of. Newton did not have to homeschool anybody. Newton did not have to try to do his job and also sort of take care of children who were suddenly home all day. Um, and I think, you know, it's obviously both fathers and mothers who do that work, but it's often mothers who do more of it and especially mm. for single mothers that's the case um we see professional caretaking work that we're seeing in care homes work that we're seeing in hospitals again disproportionately in many cases nursing and other jobs done by women also by immigrants and women of color in particular so that gender and race and class are all tied up with who is vulnerable in particular ways of course there are also issues around economic concerns who's going to be thrown out of work and as you noted at the beginning an uptick in things like domestic violence because um, because of people who feel powerless and frustrated and are suddenly, you know, now at home in, you know, nervous, anxiety-provoking situation. Um, I also have to say I have concern about the optics, um, mm. about what we see represented as expertise on the news. And, you know, for a while here in the UK, we were seeing Boris Johnson Matt Hancock and Chris Witte. In the US, we often see Donald Trump, Mike Pence, if we're lucky, Anthony Fauci, but <laughs> mostly we see men. And occasionally there's some difference there, but mostly it's men. That sends the message, I think, that both male leadership is needed in a crisis and that scientific expertise is a male prerogative. Um, now there are, exceptions. And I think people like Jacinda Ahern in New Zealand is one um, where we see a woman who is leading Angela Merkel, of course, in Germany as well. Um, but I think, you know, in our own, in the UK, in the US, I think these messages, we need to think about them. Um, and I think, you know, this sort of uh, male dominated government response is Concerning, and I think we don't see enough of women. Though I was happy um, to see, I've seen some coverage of women who were significant in terms of the science, including a woman named June Almeida, a Scottish woman who first identified the coronavirus in 1964 mm. um, at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, um, and people like Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was among the first to note that there was an inoculation route for smallpox in the early 18th century, which she saw firsthand in the harem of um, Constantinople. <laughs> well, that's interesting, because I mean, that prominent role of women in the history of um, epidemiological medicine um, makes it all the more astonishing that we see these gangs of men um, standing behind the podium or around the podium. I mean, Trump, the case of Trump is particularly striking. As you say, this troika of Trump, Pence and Fauci. Um, you know, Fauci, of course, the, the reasonable um, voice of expertise, but all three of the men 
um, despite the fact that there are so many, you know, senior women um, who are also experts in this in this area, it, it is very very striking. Sarah Pearsall, thank you so much for um, joining me to talk about how aspects of the encounter with epidemic disease in the 17th and 18th century in early America might help us to illuminate some aspects of the crisis that we're currently facing. Thank you so much. Thank you.